Welcome to The Story Tinker, a place for in-depth analysis of stories, including Midnight Poppyland, Purple Hyacinth, and more. Co-hosted by sharp, witty, and dare I say, thirsty fans, we dive deep into every episode, analyzing character, relationship development, and plot theories. You can follow The Story Tinker on all podcast platforms and videos of most episodes on YouTube. You can also follow The Story Tinker on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like weekly bonus content, sneak peeks, and more, you can support The Story Tinker on Patreon. Thanks for listening to The Story Tinker, and let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 85 of Purple Hyacinth called Tragedy's Trail. And just a recap of last episode, last episode, Lauren received the horrifying blow from Kieran, which we're not quite sure what he meant by that, but he said that everyone in the car is dead. And Lauren presumably assumes that um, Dylan was in that car. So that's where we left off last time. And this episode opens up with a rainy day at a cemetery. And there's this beautiful statue of an angel on a column overlooking a bunch of graves with two shadowy figures uh, in black wearing umbrellas um, at the cemetery. And it's raining. And we see a memorial saying, in honor of the victims of the Allendale train station tragedy and those who perished while braving the danger to help. You will be remembered, rest in peace. And now we see Lauren saying, thank you again for accompanying me here today. <laughs> and she's telling this to March. And they both have bouquets in their hands. So do we want to get into the flower analysis already? Yes. Um, okay. So uh, I can start, I guess. I'll just, I'm going to go off a analysis that was made by one of my friends, Kenny. Um, they're on the Purple Hyacinth server and they're brilliant. So uh, let's start off with Lauren's bouquet. We see um, a purple, some purple flowers, yellow flowers, white flowers, and red flowers. The white flowers are white chrysanthemums. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm probably not. They symbolize loyalty and devoted love. Uh, the purple flowers are violet chrysanthemums. They symbolize optimism and a wish to get well. The, ye- the yellow flowers are yellow chrysan- oh, God. <laughs> chrysanthemums. They symbolize neglected sorrow or love. And then the red flowers are red chrysanthemums and they symbolize love. Uh, should I do the other two as well? Sure. Okay. So the flowers in Lauren's hair are forget-me-nots, and they are promises that you will never forget someone in your thoughts. And then the flowers March carries are blue hydragas, which symbolize apology, which is a little bit suspicious because uh, he's bringing them to, as we'll see later, his wife's grave. Okay, well, maybe let's discuss that when we get to um, their graves, because there's definitely okay. some interesting yeah. things over there, at least I think so. But yeah, I mean, obviously, like the, I'm not a flower person, but even I was like pretty sure that the, the stuff in Lauren's here was forget-me-nots, like there was, it's just gotta be, there was no <laughs> way that she doesn't show up with forget-me-nots, because Lauren does not forget. There had to be yeah. some sort of flower with remembrance as a meaning. Yeah. So anyway, um, Lauren tells him, you know, if it wasn't for Herman, basically saying like she could be here by herself, but March says, you don't have to thank me. I have my own visits to make here. And, you know, said that won't be too far. And Lauren didn't, you know, Lauren um, looks after him. It seems like she didn't really know that 
he had people here to visit. And she's walking between the graves. Some of them have flowers on them. And she goes to Dylan's grave, Dylan Rosenthal from blank blank 05 to blank blank 17. So he was 12 um, mm-hmm. at the time of the train bombing. I'm still not going to say when he died because I still don't know. So yes. I finally got our age confirmation. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, also because I knew if somewhere someone, I think the authors had said that she was 22 now, and I know mm-hmm. it's 10 years after the train bombing. So, you know, I knew she was 12 then. <coughs> Yeah. And assuming so I guess he was the same age that and um, oh sorry you go no go ahead uh that unfortunately is the final nail in the casket for the Dylan equals Karen theory um oh, it has a Karen's good run older yeah Karen's 24 by now right but is he older within the comic or just because the authors told us that um it it hasn't been mentioned in the comic itself, but it is canon. It was mentioned in the Q&A, I believe. Yeah, I know. Okay, well, I was, you know, theoretically, you could say maybe they're throwing this off, but probably not. I don't know. I'm just surprised just... how long this theory has persisted. Yeah. <laughs> it, should, it shouldn't have persisted this long, but... Yeah, because I... that's my... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, I've, I saw some... Dylan equals theories uh Dylan equals Karen theories lately so I was a little bit surprised to see them I won't lie because I thought it was dying off but it's still around but hopefully uh this will be the end to it (laughs) so I think um you know I can understand why people think that because you know from a it's a typical story Mm -hmm. I guess trope or you know something that happens so I guess you know they they kind of expect it but you know, my perspective with stories is like, you know, I don't know if you remember last time I said, you know, why are we assuming Dylan was in the car? Why are we assuming Kieran was in the car? It could have been some random kids that we don't know about, right? So you said, you know, that like, it wouldn't make sense for the terms of the story, right? Like the story would probably these people that we care about and know about. So I totally see that, but like, right. So it's the same reasoning, right? I, I, I like to have this view of like, anything could happen, mm-hmm. <laughs> but like, yeah, realistically, usually things tie together within from a storytelling perspective but yeah but I think that's why people think that Dylan is Karen yeah but anyway. they definitely had some very prominent um parallels especially after the season finale like I definitely for a maybe like a period of time I will admit I was on board with that theory I was like they must be the same person but like uh, a few hours later as I was thinking about it, it's like, oh, there's some issues here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess the reason people might think was maybe that Kieran um, stitched her up and Dylan had said he wanted to be a doctor, right? And the yeah. fact that he knew about the flowers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think those are the two, some of the reasons, right? Yeah, it, but um, I think some people, it was also, it was just like a mix of theories. It was like, are they the same person? Did they know each other? Did they not know each other? Did Kieran kill Dylan later on? Did he, is Dylan the protectee? There's just so many ideas and it's like a mess. <laughs> but then also people try to insert Dylan like in like every time there was an unknown character, like for example, the messenger, people like, okay, <laughs> Dylan has to be the messenger or Dylan has to be the guy that uh, is going to fake Loon's death. Like 
he they just and oh also the photographer was a really pr prominent one like everybody thought Dinal was a photographer for a while mm -hmm. but yeah I turned out to be none of those so far and Kieran's friend right Kieran's brought up this friend a few times I'm not sure right. if they were the same friend but he was like oh I have this friend who can find his dead body <laughs> in episode like uh, 52 is that was it is that what he said it's been so, a while yeah. since I read the episode but there was also another episode where he's like oh I have a friend who can um who can like put our names on the reservation list of was it Larlequin like to prove that uh we were um there that night so the police aren't suspicious of us so yeah Karen has this friend and people think he might be Dylan I hope that this friend isn't just like an excuse and I do hope that we get to meet this friend someday the way I read that, I didn't Imagine even think about it. Imagine he has like, two oh, friends. Yeah. yeah <laughs> well, it could be one, it could be two. Uh, <laughs> or maybe his definition of friend is a little stretched. But <laughs> yeah, I didn't even think about that. I was just like, okay, they're just random people that aren't really important to the story, but you never know. <laughs> mm -hmm. So anyway, so going back to the cemetery, Lauren is looking at his grave and she says, um, she has a flashback to when they were when she was a kid, she's wearing um, a black dress with a yellow bow. And she says, that day we buried an empty casket, planted a tombstone with your name on it, yet a part of me never buried you. Everyone thought you were dead, but you weren't in there. And if you weren't, then you could have been somewhere else. It's very sad. You know, this is going through her reasoning back as a kid, which makes sense, you know, especially for a child you know, who is very physical and concrete where like there's no body, then maybe he's somewhere else. Mm -hmm. this, I believe that this panel is the first time we have seen Lauren wear yellow since episode 49. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure this is the only time we've seen her wear yellow after that incident with the train station. Oh, wait, okay. I think 64. I'm looking at a panel of 64 right now. Um, she has the yellow bow still, but she's wearing a white dress. So never mind. Uh, she's also, someone pointed this out last night um, while we were talking, or sorry, the other night while we were talking about the episode, she's actually holding Dylan's hat right now, which is very sad. Also interesting because is Dylan's mom mentioned? Because Dylan's dad, I think, also seems to have died, right? But does Dylan mm -hmm. have a mom? Because if he did, I'm assuming she would want the cap. But did we ever hear about his mom? We don't know. Oh, you can take this, Lilia. Um, in episode 49, I think it, it was just mentioned that his dad is single. Um, mm -hmm. When Lauren was teasing him, she's like, oh, that's why your dad is single. But um, the mother was never mentioned in any way. I think we, we presume she's dead. Mm -hmm. Or did F confirm that? I'm not sure. Hmm. I'm not sure. Okay. I don't remember F saying anything about Dylan's mom. I mean, Dylan could also be adopted because, like, uh, you know, white hair, <laughs> and then his dad has brown hair. Unless he has, unless he's albino. Did F ever say something about that? I feel like someone mentioned it a while back. No, I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah. Start building new theories about his mom now <laughs> who knows who she is maybe she's the leader <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, some people thought that 
going back to the Dylan and Karen theories, uh, someone thought that they had the same mom and that they were half brothers. So that was a theory I saw thrown out a while back that was discussed. So anyway, she's now we're back in the present and she's staring up at the sky with the umbrella over her, but still allowing rain to fall on her face. And she says, somehow alive, you could have, but, and then she hears Kieran's word ec words echoing again, they're dead. And then she says, even if you're one of them, you'd be gone now. So I don't know what she meant by that. Do you think she meant that even if you were one of them, like one of the purple highest of people, you'd be gone now? Is that what she meant? Like he's dead or he's not who he was? Uh, I think that they're dead is referring to Kieran in the last episode when he told her like they're dead right and so one of them is supposed to be one of the car children so even if you're one of the car children you'd be gone now so like the only oh yeah sorry go ahead uh sorry uh I think uh she's trying to say that uh like the only way she thinks he could have been alive is if he was one of those kids in the car but so now that she got confirmation that they're dead like so there's no other hope that he's alive for her and, and that's something that surprises me so much about about lauren because if she's a detective like she is jumping to conclusions she didn't even verify with kieran about the who the kids in the car were i mean there was no communication he's just said the kids in the car are dead right or he sort of said that which even that statement i'm a little suspicious of but she didn't even tell him was the guy named Dylan Rosenthal in the car. Like they could be talking about totally different people in their minds. And I feel like she just jumps to conclusions. <laughs> this is like yeah. just very surprising in terms of her detectiveness, but not surprising because she's very emotional. Um, but it also is surprising because she's been spending all these years, you know, trying to piece together clues. It'd be surprising that she like gave up so easily and just accepted that he's dead so easily. To and, be fair, oh, sorry. Without even like verifying that it was like the guy in the car. So, mm -hmm. to be fair, Kieran also pieced out before she could get any clarification. I mean, like after he dropped that bombshell on her, he just like he left. <laughs> he just left her there standing in shock. I don't know why he did. It was a very odd time to end off a conversation, but he, he's gone. He just like pieced out after that. <laughs> I think he might I, be he like very. Giving, sorry go ahead sorry about that um it might be a really emotional painful memory for him and mm -hmm. he did not want to I guess see her see him that way yeah that's how that's how I felt and I think that one one of the things I like about this comic is you know we will get very frustrated sometimes at the main characters like just talk to each other why don't you communicate but this is very real behavior and you know if you listen to like ourselves or your friends talk about their life and their relationships you know we mess up all the time and we don't do things in the ideal fashion all the time either so it's very realistic that um, they wouldn't mm -hmm. communicate enough or properly because of their emotions and relationship dynamics so it's frustrating but it's also realistic mm -hmm. yeah true. definitely so anyway so it seems that lauren is accepting that he's dead in her mind and obviously like the, the fact that it's raining and it's mingling on her face, you know, you, you don't know if she's crying or if it's, or if it's the rain, but in any case, rain is a pretty symbolic always of tears, but also in a way of rebirth um, because, you know, rain brings um, life to new plants. So it's possible that this signals, you know, a new stage in Lauren's life and a new stage in Lauren's thinking. Mm 
and she thinks you're gone. And she's, you know, standing there isolated with the statues of the towers and all the graves. Again, very somber, very moody, and everyone's gone. And now she walks back and she, you know, she's really thinking to herself, she says, all of these victims because of one man's crazy dream to change the world. Presumably she's talking about the leader because our rulers chose to ignore their people's suffering. And this second part, you'll like this, um, she <laughs> wouldn't have said this a few months ago. I don't think she was at the point where she understood the motivations of the Phantom Scythe or the Snapdragon. She didn't know about the Snapdragon, but, and I think with Kieran's help and with the help of the things that she's been learning, she understands a little bit more of the situation behind what happened. So she has more insight now than she used to, which is, you know, shows growth and learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's definitely seeing it from both sides. I'm kind of proud of her for that. Yeah, it, the character growth has been immaculate. Um, yes. You said something about like the rebirth and like um, how Lauren is changing. It's, I think she's starting to get the closure that she never got with Dylan because Dylan's death happened so abruptly and she blamed herself for it and she never really did get closure with him because he died and so with the knowledge that he is actually gone now like with Kieran saying that he is actually gone now and that the a possibility of him being alive isn't really a possibility anymore she is slowly coming to terms with the fact that Dylan's not coming back no matter how much she regrets it or how much she wishes that he will he's not I'm kind of curious to see what Lauren will behave like in the coming episodes because a big reason for her motivation to want to take down the Phantom Scythe was Dylan's death, uh, was Dylan's disappearance, I guess. And I wonder if her acceptance of his death will kind of slow down her motivation. Um, so I'm curious what will happen. Mm -hmm. um, revenge is also, revenge can also be very fruitless and the euphoria of it doesn't last long and so I'm wondering if Lauren will get an arc where she realizes that um that the that it's kind of pointless to get revenge I think that's a very big theme of many stories is that revenge won't help you overcome your grief right and there's also obviously there I think there is a very strong part of her that wants to take down the Phantom Scythe because of the terrorism that they've been perpetuating on the city of Atarlis. But there's also, um, you know, there is intermingled in the fact, just like Kieran accused her, he said, oh, you're not angry because I killed all those people in the tower. You're angry because I killed Ansla and now you don't have the answers. So she has those elements mixed. She has her personal revenge, plus, you know, the sense of justice and wanting to protect people. Yeah. Um going to the all these victims because of one man's crazy dream to change the world because our rulers chose to ignore their people's suffering. Um, as mentioned later, it's a cycle. Um, I think I mentioned this the other day too when we did the 81 recording. A lot of callbacks to that. <laughs> uh, 
there's definitely some themes that were echoed. It's tragic, but, and it makes you think, is it worth it? Will it be worth it? Do you think in the end, will all these lives be worth the outcome? changes have been made right well i guess those we can talk about in the episodes that relate to that with the, the monarchy when they talk about it but some changes improvements have been made right so i wonder if anyone would say okay you know x number of lives x number of people random people killed versus the improvement you know these improvements for this number of people it's an interesting calculation and this is by the way why i think that um i don't want to ever be like a leader with actual power because people do have to make these kinds of decisions. And I just feel like the moral dilemma that you're placed into when you have control over things like this is just, um, I think it's personally psychologically very difficult to deal with. Um, never mind worrying about your eternal soul, but just uh, on a mental perspective to have to deal with those kinds of things. And like the yeah. outcomes of the decisions will stay with you for the rest of your life. Like you have to deal with the guilt that is associated with that. Like I think um, they're recently training some healthcare professionals in, um, I forgot what the term was, but it's like the fact that they might have to choose who to save. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them were worried about like the long-term consequence of that because once you choose not to save somebody's life, like that stays with you for the rest of your life. Right. I mean, it's the classic um, medical thing, <laughs> triage, right? You know, you try to say, put your, you're supposed to be putting your efforts <clears throat> into, um, whoever can be saved the most but yeah I mean definitely we we know with coronavirus it's like the whole debate about the vaccine or the, or the beds you know like who does it go to so these are real life situations anywho so to continue you know Lauren has this look on her face where it does seem kind of resolved and more a little more at peace than we've seen her before and she asks but what she's thinking about now is not peaceful she says were my parents responsible for this and you know, looking out at the vast array of everyone in the cemetery, did they know? Now she's definitely not looking peaceful. And she has this very disturbed look in her eyes, but then she kind of like clenches her eyes shut as though she can't deal with the thought. And she, you know, starts walking rapidly. I think she is too disturbed to even like to live with herself and to let it sit. So she just has to like move. And she says, my own parents, I don't want to believe it, but they created the very thing I swore to take down. Whether they wanted to quit or not, they were guilty. And now she's at her parents' graves. Rachel Adwell Sinclair, um, blank eight, 1982, whatever, let's say 1982, 1882 to blank 17. And Alexander Deem Sinclair, 1980 to 17. So he was two years older than her, which is, I've noticed a very typical age difference in between men and women in stories, but whatever. <laughs> um, I think all the main chips in in the story have that uh, age gap, I think. Yeah, it's like always <laughs> two years for some reason. And so is the dude who's older, which honestly I never really got. <laughs> I mean, in my parents' relationship, my mom is older than my dad. So I'm like, it's kind of weird, I guess, seeing, never seeing an older woman with a younger dude like where I'm wondering like what happened to them is why is it always like the dude is older than the girl common assumption in society I also agree I think 
if I ever write something, I'll switch it up. <laughs> anyway, did you all count down how old they were when they had her? You know, her father was 25 and her mom was 23 when she had her. I'm always counting down how old the parents are when they have their kids. <laughs> oh, no, I didn't count that down. I guess 25 and 23 isn't that bad for the era, especially. I mean, now people are like doing it later. Yeah, in their 30s. Yeah. I don't know where I'm from, but yeah. So I'm they would have been 47. They would have been 47 if they were still alive in the story. Or uh, the dad would be 47, the mother would be 45. Mm-hmm. But they're not alive, so. She's thinking, and I never noticed anything, never heard any line, never. And she's looking at her, you know, there's a flashback of her parents playing with her as kids, they're smiling, they're happy. <sighs> it's crazy right and that she never heard any lies so that's that's interesting I guess they never said anything that would be a lie presumably mm-hmm. and did they know about her ability that's another interesting question yeah maybe yeah. one of them had it so that's why they were Avoided very lying. careful about her um my own parents I don't want to believe it but they created this very thing I swore to take down whether they wanted to quit or not, they were guilty. And I'm that kind of, sorry, I need to find my notes on that. <laughs> um, it, it's a bit of like, regardless of your intention, your actions still have consequences. And at the end of the day, their actions still hurt people. And they are guilty of that. They are guilty of harm even if they wanted to leave, regardless if they were aware of what they were doing, they still hurt people. And that is, they are still accountable for that. I still think she is jumping to conclusions about her parents. Like there's, like part of me thinks that the same way she's trying to work to, she's working with Karen to stop the current bombing. Like I think her parents were trying to stop like the, the train station bombing from happening and they stayed in the organization that long to I guess gather as much information as they can in order to do that like I think she's jumping to conclusion there's a lot she doesn't know and I guess it's it's a Lauren thing to do like she always just jumps to conclusions (laughs) yeah Yeah. and by the way her parents seem to have died like a week after um the train station bombing right if I have my timeline correct uh, it was like two and a half weeks, I think. I'm not entirely oh. sure. It might have been one and a half. Yeah, I don't remember what made me think so, but I remember it was definitely very close. Okay, just wanted to double check. I'll um, when that next time. <laughs> I'm sure as I go through the episodes, I'll come across the thing that showed me the time. But anyway, so she says, how could they? Why? Nothing is worth so many lives destroyed. Nothing. And she's banging her umbrella into the ground and just this look of anguish on her face. But I'll never know. So... <laughs> very emotional and you know this is all this episode kind of is all stuff that we've been interpreting on our own and you know understanding about her feelings but now she's vocalizing it you know she's taking yeah. time to process you know we don't we haven't gotten Lauren's inner thoughts as much as we have in this episode this episode is just you know really laying it bare <sighs> she says their secrets died with them what am I even supposed to believe at this point which again is a very crucial you know theme of this um comic right at the beginning she said she i'm the blindest of them all and you know this is lauren really this is like a big a big point of the story is that you don't know 
what happened. You don't know the truth. You don't know the reality. And, you know, she says, why is it the same thing over and over again? She's trembling. She's very distressed. I've come to know so much yet. And again, her hand is shaking. I know crunch nothing. And again, she just impales her umbrella into the ground. And she's extremely frustrated because Lauren does like to be in control. I mean, everyone likes to feel like they have control over their life, but I think Lauren in particular is very, um, someone who wants to control her life and wants to know everything and be clear about things. So it's a particularly frustrating for her that her whole life and her, everything she thought is being upended. Yeah, it's the, it calls, like you said, it calls back to the prologue. I don't really remember exactly what she said there, but it's um, something about like the truth not being as ideal as she thought it was. And that's definitely highlighted here. And when she found the photo with the, um, uh, the, the photo with the driver, she's like, nothing prepared me for the truth. So this might be the truth that she wasn't prepared for, or there might be more to it. Who knows? Yeah, a lot more we haven't seen yet. There's definitely more to her parents. I don't quite trust them yet. <laughs> she thinks back to the night that she was out with Kieran at Great Chapel, and she was telling him it isn't like that in our precinct. Everything here is so different. And he asks her, "Are you really that different?" And then she is thinking to herself, "You know, it seems like." Sometimes when people tell you something, it takes you a while to accept it. You know, it has to sink in. You have to think about it, mull it over until you can really understand what they said. So it seems like she's been like quietly processing Kieran's words in the back of her mind because now she says he was right. It never ends, not like this. As cops were battling the Phantom Scythe, but the Phantom Scythe was created by the system we uphold. An endless vicious cycle. Yeah, so. Yeah, I love go. this Ooh. moment so <laughs> I much. I thought of you it, when I read it. <laughs> It gave me so much satisfaction reading it. Like I was like, yes. <laughs> um, I wrote an entire section of notes for this moment, <laughs> which I titled The Vicious Cycle. Uh, I'm not sure if I should get into it now or at the end, but you guys can choose. <laughs> because uh, I think March also brings up some good points yeah, that I can write right, later. Yeah, so, so let me do it after, at the end. Yes. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> Yeah, I knew you would. This was like exactly what you said on 81. So <laughs> perfect. And then March is behind her and he says, careful, Sinclair, you'll end up catching a cold. And he, you know, extends his umbrella over her. So March is very caring. By the way, I'm one of those few people who's not suspicious of March. <laughs> I do think he's a good character, but I guess we could also talk about that at the end too. <clears throat> so, um, you know, Lauren's wondering, did he lose someone on that day too? And March also has a somber look on his face. And she says, yeah, sorry. And she's sniffling. I think we can go. And he says, all right, let's leave. Um, thanks for not running away. I probably would have been too scared to face Herman again. Ha ha, uh, you're welcome. And the sun is starting to come out, by the way. And that again, could be symbolic of, you know, she's finally moving forward. She's, there's something positive to the fact that she accepted in her mind that can't, that, <laughs> I don't mean to say Kieran instead of Dylan, but whatever, that Dylan is dead. And, you know, it's shining on the puddles, it's reflecting. And then she slows down and she or he, she slow, they both slow down, I guess. And he says, oh, I think it stopped raining. And then she's looking at the graves over there and March, and she sees it says Rosie March. And March says, it's crazy. What's, do we know a first name for March, by the way? I think we do, Oliver. right? 
Oliver. Oliver, yeah, way back when we first saw him. Okay, thanks. So it's crazy how time doesn't change anything. It's been so many years. And Rosie Marsh, so born in 05, which is the same year that Lauren and Dylan were born in and died in 11. So she was only six. And my daughter, Rosie, she would have been your age, you know. You reminded me a lot of her when I was visiting your parents when you were little. So we learned that they had a family connection and March um, marches around her parents' age. And he knew her when she was young, which I didn't know. It does make me suspicious though. Same. <laughs> Why was March seeing Lauren's parents? When was he seeing Lauren's parents? Was this after Rosie died? Because if it was after Rosie died, then it would have been like, you know, around the Snapdragon time. March, what secrets are you hiding? <laughs> yep definitely and I, like what capacity sorry uh, in what capacity would you know that like if they were uh, we were later told that they're lawyers uh, if they were prosecutors oh i'd understand why there's some kind of like a detective and a prosecutor might know each other but like lawyers it's they wouldn't be meeting as often i mean like through their work yeah. I mean, for all we know, they could have been like real estate lawyers, right? But you know. <laughs> I was thinking that, like, now that we know that the Sinclairs are lawyers, um, I just, I love that detail so much because it makes sense to their motivations. Um, you know, lawyers, they see a lot, they know a lot about how their systems work and how the laws work and just the world they live in. And so they understand the world around them the Sinclairs and uh so maybe they understood you know what was happening with the uh, with the poorer classes and it made them want to fight for a better world and fight for a more just world because they saw the injustices that plagued their city as lawyers and so um it just like adds I still maintain so they much been, to their they could have been like boring lawyers but yeah I mean yeah. I like your theory better <laughs> I mean in the in the real world like we see uh, often that a lot of like richer people would get off with easier sentences because they have access mm -hmm. to top like really expensive lawyers mm -hmm. and then the opposite obviously for poor mm -hmm. people who get really harsh sentences for like petty crimes because they don't have the same access to like legal services. It's this whatever they can access or like a state um, state appointed lawyer or something like that, which might not be as, um, I shouldn't say as capable, but like, I guess with money, uh, you get what you pay for. Yeah, um, I've been doing some research on the death penalty for school and the death penalty was a thing that they did have 10 years ago in Artalis and so it may have been the same as what Lilia mentioned about how people might have been getting the death penalty for really petty crimes and you know the Sinclair saw this because they're lawyers and they know what's happening in their industry and it may have been another reason why they went to Snapdragon because just the level and the severity of unfairness and injustice that the lower class faced just shocked them and they didn't want to be bystanders to it. And giving the censorship in the city, um, I wouldn't be surprised if some journalist or anybody who's critiquing the, the system was gotten the death penalty for, yeah, because it does happen in the real world in some, some regimes. Mm -hmm. We know they were arrested, 
but we don't know past that. And knowing how secretive the press is and how everything that happens um, has to go to the press, uh, has to go to the king before it can be put into the press. Those reporters very well may have been um, executed. Uh, we don't know, and it, we may never know, but it is possible. <laughs> you, know, you know what's interesting? I just, um, thinking about our own biases. So my husband is from Europe and he's from Holland and um, he's very into politics and political theory and history. And um, he has become over the past couple of years, a very big monarchy fan. And, you know, he studies it and he just goes on and on. He can talk about it for hours. And I realized that I have a very positive impression of monarchy because of him. And obviously as Americans, like Americans grow up with a very scornful vision of monarchy. We're like, oh, monarchy is stupid. And like, we have democracy, which obviously like <laughs> those two are not mutually exclusive and we actually have a republic. But anyway, um, I realized like my, my, all my impressions while reading this I've, are very, very pro-democracy because in my mind, uh, sorry, not democracy, in my mind, monarchy is good. And um, I have a hard time like reworking that to like look at the story and try to show us what our sophism and um, and ephemera is showing us about the monarchy and our hollis. Like I have to be situation specific and get my own positive bias out of the way. <laughs> it's just really interesting. Purple High, oh yeah. That's the thing I really like about Purple Hyacinth is that it, does demonstrate flaws in different political systems and it does demonstrate the flaws when you want to revolutionize and just um you know have a revolution and you want to rebel there's so many different moral and could i can't say that word I, my pronunciation is trash <laughs> there's just so many complexities and um it's not easy definitely not easy um for my opinions about monarchy it can be good like you know one person but it's like a very one person holds most of the power I guess and then it's like the people under them also have power and it's just distributed throughout it goes down that's um, the thing Monar monarchy can be like integrated with other systems you know yeah. like constitutional monarchy so then you know there could be systems where the monarch is just the figurehead or like you know um you know like kind of the leader of the country in terms of like making nice speeches and you know going to meetings with other countries like anyway so there's a whole range <laughs> within monarchy as well yeah i personally don't like the idea of like birthright uh like mm -hmm. taking over power like just through birthright like it's just it's not whoever's most capable or most um yeah for the job it's just do this happen to be born into the position so yeah that's why i don't think that don't makes like, good leadership that's why i don't really like monarchy and also you know as you see in our hollis uh, monarchies uh do have the potential of going down some not so great paths and ignoring the people who need their help most and so i think that's i like democracy because in a more ideal democracy, I can't say America because America has a long history of voter suppression, but in um, democracies, ideally, everyone gets a say in what they want. And we don't see that in Artalis, and that's why Artalis needs a democracy of some sort. And right, like, so Lilia, I'm curious, like there's no, you know, you can have like in England or Holland or all these, you know, all these European countries, you have a democracy and then you, and plus the monarchy, right? So you don't seem to have like 
a constitution in our polis or electoral, you know, an elected body. Um, mm -hmm. We haven't heard of that yet. So presumably it doesn't there's, have it. There's a council, but we're not sure if it's elected or appointed by the monarchy itself. And um, like Lilius, uh, something Lilius, I was like, it's a birthright. So the people, it makes me almost feel a little bit bad for the people who are appointed or like who are born into these families because they don't really get a choice and they just have to become uh, the ruler. And we have seen instances in histories where they have um, passed that role onto their um, sibling or someone else in their family or just someone else entirely. But it does, there is also a lot of pressure for them to um, comply to their family's expectations. And I think that's also just still a little bit tragic on their side because, you know, who wants to be told what to do and who wants to be told um, that your entire life has been meant for this one thing, even though you inside know that you want something else. And uh, yeah, it makes me feel kind of bad for the Prince of Artalis too, because I mean, he's a kid and, you know, he gets some sympathy points for that. But he, if Artalis is to stay the way that it is, he's going to have to grow up and he's going to have to do some pretty terrible things. And in my heart, it hurts thinking about that. have to, right? The thing is, it's always a choice, right? And that's what I'm, I'm very curious about, like, what the, what the end goal of this story is. Like, is it going to be that Lauren, with the help of other people, is going to reform the monarchy? So maybe this little prince is going to grow up and be like, okay, let's fix things, you know? Mm -hmm. That's, but um, if it stays the same, then, oh, God. But, yeah, I can see. I'm not sure if Lauren and the the rest of the O4 would be able to implement a new political system because none of them are politicians and none of them are really lawyers. So I'm not sure how qualified they would be to... Uh, create a whole new political system and write up a constitution or something like that but there may be other people who get introduced who may be able to help out more with that right now they just need to spark the change and they need and then they need to support the people who will bring in the new government right yeah I, I agree I don't think it'll necessarily be them to sit down and write new laws but mm -hmm. they could be part of the catalyst, part of the change. Yeah. So, okay. Um, so actually, Lilia, what you were saying, the March, March and her parents did work on cases together, she says. And he says, they're two brilliant lawyers. And then Lauren's like, but my parents, they aren't who you think they are, she thinks. Now, for all we know, March does know, right? <laughs> well, we'll find out. And, you know, he says, Lauren, uh, Rosie was only six. And March is looking, you know, across at her grave. And then Annabelle, she was the most exceptional woman I've ever known. Now, Annabelle's year of death is not shown. And let's go a little bit more because I have something to say about Annabelle. Um, and then he says, you know, uh, she says, sorry, Lauren says, I spent so much time wondering why them when so many criminals are out there living unapologetically. No, actually, Amor says that. And Lauren says, there isn't any reason or fairness in it. There's one thing I learned with our work we don't get to choose whom tragedies fall upon. And I think that's very true. You know, there's a lot of times there's blameless tragedies, you know, where like there's nobody's fault, people get sick. And, um, you know, that's what happened with his daughter. Um, mm -hmm. 
And I mean, there's, you know, you could, there's, I think somebody had this theory about his daughter, but in any case, life it can be unfair for reasons that are just totally beyond anyone's control. And I think that's actually one of the most important lessons that people have to learn when they become adults. Yeah. So I like the fact that we see it here. And then there's also it, obviously all the injustice caused by humans. It's incredibly profound. And I love how it's how it was brought up because this is the lighting and the art and then the, just the writing. It's all gorgeous. And then the way that they're talking about it and we now know there's we know about the death behind these characters. And it's an incredibly somber but real moment. And yeah, we don't get a choice in what happens. We don't um, we don't get to say who lives or dies, but the best thing we can do after these tragedies happen is to find a way to move on. Oh, I can't really hear you. Oh, can you hear me better now? Yeah. Okay. So Lauren is closing her umbrella, um, which I think also could kind of be a way of moving on, right? There's the sunlight glinting on it. And she says, I knew you had a family, but if I may ask, how did they pass? And Marsh says, Rosie was sick. We tried everything we could, but we couldn't save her. And Annabelle, she fell into the bloody hands of criminals that have been plaguing Artalis for too long. And again, her year of death is obscured. And I actually thought that um, the way that Marsh phrased it was a little suspicious. I wondered if she had fallen into the hands of criminals in the sense that she had joined them and died as a result. Like maybe it was like um, Lauren's parents and you know she joined the Snapdragon and then ha- was killed by the Phantom Scythe because of what she knew mm-hmm. or be- in the line of her, her work. I'm very curious. I, I'm, that phrasing was a little off and the fact that her, their year of death is obscured. I have a feeling that's, that's definitely significant. Yeah, she fell, yeah. it could have been, she fell to the bloody hands, but instead it's, she fell into the bloody hands. So it's a bit suspicious in what he's trying to imply there. Um, but yeah, it could have, it may be why March has, been a little bit softer on the phantom side like he does seem to not be as um hateful towards them I mean it's so obvious that he does he is against them and what they believe but I think he does understand where they're coming from a bit more um could she maybe have been like an undercover cop of some kind and they ended up uh outing her or they ended up, yeah, because like uh, Food said, uh, she fell into the bloody hands like she was maybe among them. Mm-hmm. Other people have speculated maybe Kieran is the one who killed her. I mean, oh, yeah. Who knows? <laughs> um, I, I wrote some notes somewhere. Let me find them. Okay, so there, where did I, oh, wait, okay. Yeah, no, I had, it got, <laughs> So I was thinking that if Kieran did kill Annabelle and we've seen March become a very fatherly figure to the characters in the 11th precinct. And so it makes me wonder, is March and Kieran, are March and Kieran going to bond 
and then is it when Kieran is revealed to be the purple hyacinth how will March react and I personally think that March he will be sad about it and he will feel bitter but like these things happen but he will recognize that the best thing he can do personally is to move on and um he will he might recognize that Kieran didn't really have a choice in all of this because you know Kieran is like he is ordered to do these things regardless of his own free will and for his own survival and so March may come to forgive Kieran and I ultimately think that that would be the most powerful way to go with this is that because forgiving someone will bring you more peace than wishing for revenge your entire life. Might be a model for Lauren in that regard. Yeah, I mean, March seems like an extremely wise person over here in this mm-hmm. episode and in general. And, you know, Lauren thinks to herself she was murdered and he, she says, I'm so sorry to hear that. <laughs> he says, so am I. <laughs> oh. And then she says, that's why we both became detectives, isn't it? To restore balance in this world. And he nods and, you know, and then Lauren has this conflict and she shares it with March. She says, fighting for justice seems noble and naive at the same time. I joined the police academy with so many ideals, all shattered in only so few years. And March says, and it's all, these are all very reflective moments again with beautiful like sunlight mm-hmm. um, behind them. And he says, there are definitely many wrong things with the current system, but in the end, it's about what you are prepared to do and what you'll defend with all of your soul. If there are things that are wrong, you must try to make a difference. <laughs> and, and Lauren is embittered. She says, you know, it didn't lead me very far. How can we defend these ideals if the system is constantly keeping you on the ropes for trying? And March says, and he has this very grim look on his face because this is clearly something that is personal to him. He says, you fight. And, you know, Lauren looks up, she kind of looks surprised. It seems as though there's either maybe a very, the strength of the way that he said it. And she says, but is it really worth it? The things I've done, I'm doing, I deserve what I've gotten. What does she mean? I deserve what I've gotten. She deserves to have had her parents die. Like, I don't really understand what she means by that. I think she's referring to how she got, she got in trouble with Sake and she got demoted. Mm-hmm. That may be why. Because yeah. she did try to um, get him arrested, but then she ended up getting herself in trouble instead. Yeah, that's true. Well, she did deserve she may, that. <laughs> she may also be referring to the now to the knowledge she now has because um, the things I've done, the things I'm doing, I deserve what I've gotten. So she for um, venturing into this world for the into this unknown world of the Phantom Scythe and um, into venturing this world of this class war. She deserves the knowledge she now has. And whether she wanted it or not, she deserves it. This is the consequences of her actions. The knowledge she now has is the consequence of she seeked it and now she got it. Is she happy with it? Not really. But this is what happens when you actively try to learn things. (laughs) You may come to conclusions that you are not happy with. I could also refer to how her life is got messed up after she she became alone. Like right now, there's orders to 
to get Loon killed, right? And mm -hmm. uh, her life is just messed up overall. So maybe she's referring to that as well. Yeah, I mean, that was something she was definitely, you know, unsure about from a moral perspective. And I think still, still something that that is, it's on her. And she says, all my life, I've been told to let things go. This, by the way, this kind of personally makes me cringe because I, I totally relate to this, that there wasn't anything I could do about them, that it was too late or too pointless, or that no one would believe me. I should have listened. Just look at the disastrous outcome of Chow's case. And, you know, this is like, this is a tough moment for Lauren because Lauren's a fighter and Lauren's been one who hasn't given up and who's just been persistent for good or for bad um, and obstinate. So you, this is a, you could tell she's really worn down by what's been happening to her, for her to come to this point and for her to even say something like this, where she seems pretty hopeless and about like the effects of her actions. So clearly, you know, things have been taking a toll on her. Mm -hmm. She's definitely spent a lot of time thinking about the past few months and um you know with everything she's learning she's might be starting to regret what she's done I mean before she was a very confident person and you know very assured in her actions as we see in the prologue like she is on top of the world and she has just been knocked down several steps <laughs> and it's a very I'd say intimate moment between March and Lauren because they're both talking about their personal issues even though they're not really framing it that way these issues are very um, central to them and they both trust one another and they're being open with each other and um, the light also could be to reflect that Lauren is sort of rising a bit now she's coming to terms with it all. And she's being more open. Now, March says, and he has words of affirmation. He says, forgive me, but if there's one thing Chow's case teaches us is that there are causes that must be defended, even if they seem lost. And just the framing of him in the panel also is just like a very heroic framing. You know, he's standing there upright. The sun is beaming on him. He's, it's a very, you know, tall shop. Mm -hmm. So he's standing tall and, you know, he's kind of like portrayed as the virtuous figure. Even if they seem lost, even if you're the last one standing, I mean, this is, a, this is an impassioned defense of the fight for justice. And Lauren is very impacted by it. You know, her eyes open wide. And she said, he says, yes, you have committed mistakes, but what matters is how you move forward from this point on. Learn from your mistakes. Become a better version of yourself to fight for your cause. Oh, it's just so good. If you stop yeah. fighting now, will you ever end up regretting it? Oh, God. It's just- I, This moment it, makes me want to cry. It is so good. Just- you know, how he says it, the writing, how it's paced, how the lighting looks and how Lauren looks and how he looks. And it's just gorgeous. I, I can't describe it with, with words, like how I feel. It is pure euphoria. <laughs> I would, okay. Also, I do think that uh, what he says um, is that there are causes that must be defended, even if they seem lost, even if you're the last one standing. I'm pretty sure there will be a callback in the climax to this moment, even if you are the last one standing. Mark is totally going to sacrifice himself for the greater good. I'm so sad. I already feel it. That's my prediction. What, what are you thinking? 
I, I don't know. It just, it, I'm marveling at Soph and F. Mary's right now. It's just brilliant. All of this brilliant. One of my favorite episodes. It's all very, like you said, the word profound before. It's profound. It's true to life. It's real stuff. Um, I like that stuff. You know, I obviously like, I like fluff and comedic relief and all that too, but um, this is really, really heavy hitting. Um, these are uh, themes, you know, mm -hmm. that we all hopefully should be thinking about and dealing with in our own lives. So I also, this was, it was beautiful. And he says, it is hard. I know, believe me, I do. When I open my eyes in the morning, when I feel the warmth of the sun or breathe in the evening breeze, it reminds me that they're still here helping my fight in this system. So it's interesting that he, you know, now we see from his words that he perceives himself to be fighting for justice within the system. And I fight for what they've given me and what they should have been given in this life. And I'll continue to do my best for them. It's so very human, right? So genuine. Mm -hmm. I mean, the lack of control, but despite that, despite this lack of control and despite this turbulence and despite this not really ever being quite sure, you're still fighting and you're still you're still, um, you keep going, even after all this. And it almost seems a little idealistic for me, like, I don't know. It is idealistic, and it's a good, I mean, I think, I think idealism is good when mixed with some pragmatism. Mm -hmm. And the way he's like, so what about you, Sinclair? He's sure of what he's doing. He knows what he's doing, and he has accepted what is to come and what may never be, but Lauren hasn't. And so he's trying to help her reach that point. Right. Lauren's now in a state of confusion and uncertainty. And that she seems to be having some kind of epiphany. Oh, I can't really hear you again. Sorry, your mic is your mic is, tends to be quiet when you start talking again. So Lauren seems to be having some kind of epiphany. You know, she has her eyes open wide and her sunlight is on her and she doesn't respond for a while, but then she tells him, okay, let me do one last thing before we leave. And she said, do it quick. I have to go soon. And I believe you have a big party to attend. So that's, you know, a hint to our new year's party. And she says, yes, it won't be long. And she goes back, walking back through the cemetery and you see her looking at this, this statue um, of an angel a woman, a female angel, holding up a torch, it seems. And she says, Dylan, if you're up there somewhere with everything that has happened in the last months, I don't know what to believe anymore. But one thing has not changed. I will never stop fighting for you. I just wish you were by my side to guide me somehow. <sighs> Very emotional, tender sad phenomenal moment just absolutely and then she has this like Amazing. look of determination in her eyes mm -hmm. like she's definitely doing this and it's it's um I think it's the first uh, that we've seen Lauren like she's very determined in this moment she's sure of who she is and what she wants and that's something that um she wasn't she didn't really have before and now she's 
slowly rebuilding her confidence even after the blow of knowledge about who her parents were and she's not really letting it define her she's gonna become her own person and uh, regardless of um, who they were she will fix um, what they did and she will stand for what she believes in still take her some time you know to to deal with the knowledge of what she knows now and figure out like the new her new approach to life but yeah it's clear that she won't give up she might stumble she might take a while to recover she might need time to process but lauren is still a determined fighter who doesn't give up Mm -hmm. i think she really really needed that pep talk from march like it was delivered at the right moment for her yeah Yeah. and you know, that's something Lauren hasn't done a lot. She, we know in the beginning when we first meet her uncle Tristan, she says, oh, uncle is so kind to me, but she doesn't seem to really reach out to any mentor figures. We, we don't really see much of a relationship between mm-hmm. them. And we assume there is, it's kind of implied there is, but we haven't seen it. And Lauren is a very independent person. She doesn't ask for help from people. She's very self-reliant. So the fact that she accepted all that from March and opened up to him, I mean, that, that's also a very good step in her evolution as a character to learn that you can't do everything on your own. And sometimes you need help from other people. Um, I, I did this uh, little analysis a while back um, about the hero's journey and Lauren and I was supposed to write an essay on it, but I never did. And that's my fault. But we used to think that Lauren's mentor, because um, in the hero's journey, there's a mentor. Uh, so it goes from the call to adventure to supernatural aid to threshold guardian. Then you start entering the unknown. You pass the threshold. There's a helper, a mentor, temptation, abyss, the death and rebirth, transformation, atonement. Then you go back to the known and its return. And I thought that the journey into the unknown was Lauren's, um, was when she became Loon. And that's when she started learning about the Phantom Scythe and she really started entering this new world that she had never been in before. And I thought that her mentor figure was supposed to be Kieran because he is helping guide her through this. And, but the problem is, is that usually uh, they're depending on like who you look to, the ordinary world and the special world uh, are different. Sometimes the mentor is still in the ordinary world. Uh, so the known world and so um, usually the mentor dies at some point and March is also helping March is really stepping up as another mentor figure and so now I'm very concerned for the well-being of these two characters because they might very well die leaving the um, protagonist so leaving Lauren to figure out the world without their guidance anymore and now she must figure it out like just by herself i'm okay with march dying i am not okay with kieran dying it is not i'm not okay with any of them dying if they die i will cry and i will not be okay for several weeks afterwards (laughs) It, it can't happen i'm a happy ending story kind of person um i stopped reading tragedies because i can't life has to have a happy ending. That's my moral conviction. And everything I see in life has to align with that. 
So Kieran's not dying, okay? <laughs> but then again, like has been highlighted in this chapter, we don't have control over what happens, um, whether for good or bad. Um, for oftentimes we can only stand by and watch. We can, we can fight for a better future, but if we don't, then who's to say where we'll end up? Yep. So still don't want anyone to, to die. Yeah. <laughs> I know it can happen, but I don't want it to. So I'm gonna pretend that it won't. Um yes. Are we ready to move on to the next part, which starts with incredibly another interesting yes. parallel? Yes. So <laughs> the last image we have in the cemetery is the angel holding up the um the torch, which to me, honestly, as an American, it reminds me of, me of the Statue of Liberty, which, you know, with the her holding the freedom, the, the um, freedom torch for everybody to come. And this, to me, like harkened back the themes of justice and, um, you know, providing a shelter for everybody. So that like was very tied in with what Lauren's learning about the history of Artalis and the current situation. So that made sense if that's what the authors were referencing, which I know they're not American. So maybe the symbolism isn't quite there for them, but for me, it is at least. But now we open up with a party and we see Tristan raising a glass and there's they these like the leaves making the same exact angel mm -hmm. um, wing position. They look the exact same. And um, it's all right if I narrate the next few parts because sure. it, there's two other instances. Um, we see Lauren coming down the steps um, into their dining room. I guess you could call it the dining room. Uh, we see many party guests there's a banquet on the table um she's watching them and then we see someone open the door for someone and they're knocking and we go from somehow and the new year's party i think yeah there's no dialogue in between then we see stefan come in and stefan looks very peculiar as well the lighting behind him also gives him the shape of wings and there's a little halo from a light at the top of the room. Uh, then we see Dokken and the clouds make a halo around, uh, make wings around him and he has a little halo as well. And so there's these three men have angel symbolism around them. And my first thought when I saw that was straight up irony because <laughs> these dudes definitely have some skeletons in their closet this is irony <laughs> well they could be fallen angels true right? yes fallen angels um and, and that could harken back to the whole you know we know Dathan it seems that Dathan was a part of the snapdragon so that could kind of tie into the whole issue of like Snapdragon converting into Phantom Scythe and starting out with good intentions, but you know, the ends don't justify the means and then becoming perverted and violent along the way. So maybe yeah. these are fallen angels who started out with good intentions and started out in the Snapdragon, wanted to help society and then became corrupted along the way and now just took power for themselves or killed too many people along the way. So it could really tie in. I don't know. Uh-huh. Um, I also... Okay. Oh God, why, why am I brain farting now? Um, okay, they're all enforcers of the current system as well. 
like they've got this angel symbolism they're supposed to seem like angels but they all help the system of oppression somehow like Dokken, he works with the royals and yes he is trying to lobby for um you know better policies and laws he is still sort of helping the royals and he is still sort of a bystander in that then we have tristan he's the chief of police um and we've seen that the police can be uh, kind of bad in our tallest especially in the poor districts and then we have stefan who is also a chief of police he was the one before tristan and he was also the commander of the military i think he was a very high-ranking position in the military and so all of them have helped create this world that they live in today and all of them have shaped um how the world they live in today works and yet and we've seen that the world isn't that great and yet they all look like angels public persona right is mm-hmm. an angel versus their their private or their past that's and maybe that's very curious and maybe that's who they are to the party guests because uh, presumably the party guests are pretty rich right they have money they can afford to like they would if they were invited then they probably could afford to come <laughs> um so maybe to these party guests they are angels they have and because these party guests um benefit from the current systems. I'm very curious what they meant by that. And we'll still find out more. And one thing I also noticed was that Lauren um, smiles. Well, that's the last image of Lauren smiling. And I think it's because in reaction to seeing Dakon, it seems that she has a very positive relationship with him. You know, mm-hmm. when he was mentioned, she, she reacted positively. So I'm curious to see that. Did you interpret it that way, her smile? Or was it just her being social? <laughs> I think I thought it was just her being social, but I'm unsure because like yeah, she, yeah. she's still coming down the stairs, and Dokken is currently outside, so like she could just be about to greet some people. Yeah, I thought she was putting on like a front for the for the guests because I don't think she's very happy at the moment, but at least she's trying to, you know, maintain you know the positive appearance of you know a Sinclair um, person. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Well, that's the end of that. What are our final thoughts? I know, Fu, you um, said you had a whole essay yes, written. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not really essay, just a long list of notes. Uh, my friend, Minnie, also wrote up some notes. And so I'm currently going through them to see if there's anything that um, she pointed out that we should also go over but I'll have you guys go first while I sort through uh, Minnie's notes. Well, I guess my first thought is a lot of people were suspicious of March. And I think March maybe has something in his history that would, will be interesting and intriguing. But I just view March as a good person. I don't think he'll end up being a bad person. Um, so it's just my personal advocate advocacy for March. Personally, like my views of him are starting to change. Like I thought when the fortune teller was talking about the betrayal, um, he seemed like a good candidate because at that time, like it was his uh, relationship with Lauren was um, improving, I guess, or it seemed like um, 
if he were to betray her, he is not one of the people that came to mind. Like a few episodes ago, she had like a list of candidates um, and the betrayal is implied that it's gonna come out of nowhere or like it's gonna be somebody that uh, she did not see it coming from. So if he was the one to betray her, it would, I guess, line up with that. But it, and as a character, like he seemed too good to be true. Like I said, he's too idealistic for somebody who's um, was a police officer, I don't know. But now, honestly, like my views of him are changing. Like, I don't think he's a betrayer. But that remains to be seen. I think Dawkins is just trying to make the most out of a terrible situation because he has the privilege to be in the police. He has the ability to influence it from the inside. And so given this privilege, um, he is trying to make the most of it honestly you know, i actually march? think that yeah i think you meant march but i think both Dokken and march are actually um you know very well placed to make change rather than the phantom scythe which you know their method is terrorism and terrorism is a method that some people choose to try to get their changes done but i actually think that both um march and Dokken, by being within the positions of power have the capability of changing the system more than random acts of violence um, do so um, that's my I yeah I think their roles are their places are good places to, to make small changes incrementally that might that will last and that won't be decried like the phantom scythe is because mm-hmm. the phantom scythe they basically are killing people to try to get changes done or at least that's what yeah. they started out I don't even know if that's their intention anymore but um <laughs> As, I mean, we see even within the within the pandemic site, there's that frustration of like, oh, nothing's getting done, nothing's getting done, we're not doing anything. So, um, but you know, whereas March and Dokken are actually getting stuff done. Yeah. Um, oh God, what was I gonna say? <laughs> uh, I I think for the PS, their method is just gaining uh, getting attention to their cause through violence, because you know, if you can. Any publicity, any um, publicity is good. Publicity, oh God, publicity. <laughs> Here's my question, though. I don't know if the Phantom Sites goals are well known because, at least again, we're we're we heard this pers- this story from Lauren's perspective, and Lauren was like, okay, you know, they're terrorizing the city. Everyone's terrified of them, right? In the introduction, when we learn about the Phantom Sites the impression is that they're just a terrorist group and everyone hates them and is terrified of them. They don't seem to be doing a good job of publicizing their goals, maybe, or like you said, which could very well be, this is, um, you know, the monarchy or the establishment or whoever has painted them as that. And that's what the public's perception, you know, that mm-hmm. kind of like PR has overridden whatever materials the Phantom Scythe has put out. So it could just be like a question of whose narrative is believed. Yeah, that's the thing. Oh, sorry. Uh, go ahead. Oh, oh, thank you. Uh, Lauren is an unreliable narrator. <laughs> From her perspective, the Phantom Scythe is a bad thing, but it could very well be flipped on us because we don't know um, how the Phantom Scythe is perceived by the lower class. Um, I discussed this with one of my friends. Her name's Elo. I think I mentioned her before to you, Mindy. Um, and I asked if I could use what she said during our discussion and she uh, very graciously said yes. And so she said, 
I think there's something to be said about unreliable narrators. Most of the information we get from and about the Phantom Scythe is coming from people who genuinely have a reason to hate them. So like the main four, March, the APD, et cetera, et cetera. We never get the perspective about the Phantom Scythe from someone like Harvey, who joined, who likely joined because his family was slipping beyond the line of poverty. We don't hear about the Phantom Scythe through the mouths of Grey Chapel residents who are starving and cold and desperate for someone to help them anyone to help them in a real life perspective like if we want to apply this to real life it's the same way we put down gangs in urban primarily poor areas when they're doing more for people's finances than the government ever could we outside viewers of gang activity can criticize the gang itself but the problems based around gang activity gang activity is all systematic we can't fault anyone for doing what they need to survive we also can't fault anyone for thinking positively about a violent group that supplies the rent money or the food on their table. I could take it a step further and say that an inner city gang infrastructure wouldn't exist if it were not for the upper class funding and supplying of criminal activities such as drugs. People can be put down for doing what they need to survive and um, sorry, people can be put down for doing what they need to survive and keep a roof over the head. But who is all responsible for creating the industry for them? It's the rich. It's the same slash similar thing to the Phantom Scythe. Yes, we can spit on the Phantom Scythe for resorting to violence when they didn't need to, for becoming ter territorial and engaging in criminal activity to prove a point. But who laid down the foundation? Who is enabling and even supplying their behavior? Furthermore, who is the one putting them down? And um, I, I love Alo. She's she's a brilliant mind and everything she says is so brilliantly articulated. Um, and I just, I also found this incredibly profound. Uh, we've talked about this a few times and uh, I think Lauren pointed it out earlier where she's like, um, let me find it. As cops were battling the Phantom Scythe, but the Phantom Scythe was created by the system or as Alo said, the foundation we uphold. And yeah, I took that from my vicious cycle part. So we're kind of uh, dipping into that. <laughs> I mean, it's also definitely just one of the central themes of the story. Like you're rethinking yep. everything that you thought. I love what's happening really... incrementally, you know? Um, that's actually one of the satisfying things about being a reader is that you don't, they don't shove it in your face, right? If they, if the authors shove the message in your face, it's unsatisfying, but here, like we learn trickle by trickle, we learn a detail here, a detail here, history here, and then we ourselves start rethinking our perspective, and we're going through the same experience as though we are Lauren, for example, basically, and mm -hmm. it's much more satisfying that way, because it, it reads like real life. Mm -hmm. We're coming at this like Lauren, so you know, when I first started reading Purple Hyacinth, I didn't know about any of this, like I had some sort of idea about it, but I I didn't really talk about it, but now that uh, PH is really brought to the spotlight, I am talking about it. And that's just something I love about this series is that it gets you talking about issues that you wouldn't be talking about previously. Exactly. Yeah. So did and, you want to um, talk about the vicious cycle or was that um, covered? I was just dipping into that. Um, I guess since we're on the topic, I'll start talking about my notes and then I'll bring up some good points that uh, Minnie had. So um, I to the panel where Lauren says, all these victims because of one man's crazy dream to change the world. 
because our rulers chose to ignore their people's suffering. I said that it really is a cycle, the lower class. So the lower class is systematically oppressed. And then to combat this oppression, they peacefully protest through groups such as Snapdragon. Then Snapdragon is oppressed and villainized and um, to be heard, Snapdragon resorts to violence, but then the socialist ideas are villainized and the lower class becomes more widely hated than you repeat. And all of this happened because the people in power were mainly concerned with, preso- with preserving their own status and lifestyle, regardless of intention to the panels of whether they wanted to quit or not, they were still guilty. Regardless of intention, the Sinclair still hurt people. Regardless of Lauren's awareness of this issue, she's still upholding an oppressive system as a cop. Regardless of the Phantom Scythe having the intention of building a better world, they are still using violence. And to what just to what extent is this all justified? Um, we can say murder is never justified, but can it be? Can you kill one person? If you kill one person to save a hundred, is that justified? Um, you know, as and then I did. I went back to eighty one the 81 podcast and I gave the debate that we had a listen through to reflect on what I said and if there are ways that I could have improved what I said and be been more clear with my intentions um and I wrote a bunch of notes of that so Lauren still helped um she still helped uphold this oppressive system as shown in 85 yes as you mentioned she didn't choose to be born in the upper class and um, it was by luck. This is, you know, where you're, which, where you're born, it's all luck. So even though she had no say in where she was born, she is still a gear in the system, um, you know, regardless if she meant to be. Her actions have consequences or rather maybe even her lack of action and that still causes harm. March makes a good point. Use your position to fight because your position gives you privilege and privilege gives you power. And um, I said something about in the podcast about how in Art Hollis, um, if if you're poorer, you have the most hurdles to get over because everyone against you is because almost everyone against you is working against you. And uh, that wasn't very the clearest thing to say, but I was kind of trying to say that this isn't to say that people are working against the lower class purposefully like Lauren, but it is to point out how in a capitalistic society, we often tend to take part in practices harmful to others. Um, for example, the, my, the example I highlighted in my notes is fast fashion. It is a prominent product of capitalism and we benefit from cheap clothes like um, us three we benefit and often it's as much as people can afford but the workers who make these clothes are often severely underpaid and mistreated with horrible working conditions when those of us who have the privilege of buying ethically buy into fast fashion we in turn are supporting a system which harms workers overseas no matter if we realize it or not regardless if we're aware of the problems of fast fashion and the problems with buying cheap clothes that were made overseas, our actions still have harmful consequences. And I think the same same with the same is the same with Lauren. Yeah, I mean, I like how you're bringing it to real life, especially with fast fashion, because it's interesting that, you know, the, the, the irony is also that like, it's kind of like the poor of one country are working for the poor of another country because 
you know, here, right, it's like our poor who are buying the cheap clothes. In addition to us, right, we're taking advantage of it too. I wouldn't call it myself poor, but, um, you know, there are, you know, if somebody can't afford clothes, they go to Walmart, right? And um, that's cheap clothing available for our poor, but yeah, you're right, it's produced by even poorer people in other places. Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of raises the question is like is ign ignorance a crime like between the three of us there's a lot of atrocities happening in the world and we have no idea about them mm -hmm. uh, like with fast fashion like we know we know it's happening but um and like even in the age of internet like censorship still exists and even if you know like sometimes you think as like a single person you don't have like an impact to make much of a change like let's say you change your ways in some way like you're still like a drop in the ocean, or at least it feels that way. Mm -hmm. I just this, when I was younger, I was a very idealistic person and I didn't understand. I was like, why don't people spend their whole day devoted to, you know, social causes? Because that's what was on my mind a lot, you know, like fronting wars and helping poor people. And then I, I grew up and like, I had to support a family and most of my time is honestly spent just day-to-day -day living, like trying to make sure I can pay my bills and you know, mm -hmm. going to school and working a million jobs and, and doing this podcast, right? That's, that's, this is the fun part. I don't, this doesn't pay bills really, <laughs> but I realized why adults aren't more into social causes because it's very hard to, you know, step back from your daily responsibilities. And, you know, because at the end of the day, like you're tired, you don't, you want to like watch a movie. You don't want to sign petitions or lobby Congress or, you know, do other things. It's mm -hmm. hard. And I, I get it, but like, I also, you know, I know for me, um, when I found out about like factory farming, for example, in animals, so I stopped eating meat. And then for a couple of years, I was actually pretty strictly vegan also because of the way cows are treated and, and, and chickens. Mm -hmm. And like, now I'm like, I've gotten less discipline. So like I do eat dairy and some, a little bit of eggs and I feel terribly guilty because I'm like, I'm, you know, contributing to the system that oppresses these animals. And like, I just feel bad about myself that I'm too lazy to stop myself from eating yogurt, you know? <laughs> it's like I pathetic. I don't, but. oh, I don't, I'm not mad about like the people who like, you know, um, who buy into these systems. Like I buy into these systems as well. I'm mad that it's impossible to avoid them because like, you know, um, with, you know, the rise of fast fashion, it's, and, you know, just capitalism entirely makes it that the most convenient option and on and a lot of the times the only option, you're going to have to hurt someone else in some way. And we see that in the Phantom Scythe, right? Um, right now, the um, you know, the Phantom Scythe, if they kind of portray it that like, if you want to in the royals they make it seem that like if you want change you're a terrorist now and you know <laughs> people have to make that compromise um if they join the phantom scythe they do have to compromise their morals and but if that is the case it does make you ask has the situation gotten so bad that people are willing to um sorry I said, um, are people, okay, sorry. I'm going to backtrack a little bit. Uh, the PS is the perfect system for the lower class. 
uh, this is going back to what I said in eight, in the 81 podcast. I said that the PS is the perfect system for the lower class, but I did fail to point out the compromising of morals. To join the fandom scythe, you have to put morals behind, but it's evident that there are people willing to do this because they have no other options, and it really shows how bad the situation is in our tallest. For example, Harvey. Um, I mean, Harvey is not a is not really a bad person. Like we saw, we saw him. We kind of knew him. Like he wasn't a terrorist, but he was Phantom Scythe, and he was in the Phantom Scythe to support his grandfather, who probably you know was old and couldn't financially support himself. And so, it's are we mad at Harvey for being the Phantom for being in the Phantom Scythe when he was? doing it for a good cause I think you're I think you're right that Harvey is definitely placed within the story to give us that question because he he's still at the end of the day even once we find out he's a spy he's still portrayed as like this innocent cute boy so I do think that that's exactly what his role in the story is to make us think Mm -hmm. his actions still have harmful consequences he did sorry Lilia he did really intel to the phantom scythe and that may have killed other people And so it's just this moral mess (laughs) in this moral dilemma. Again, it's all of these philosophical problems. Sorry, Lily, you can go. Sorry. Um, Even if he was part of the organization, like I don't, we don't know for sure if he joined for the cause or if he was working toward the cause. Like you have some people in the organization like Kieran, for example, who I guess they're also, he's also misplaced in a way, but his uh, goals don't really uh, line up with whatever the the PS is trying to do. Like, I think a big portion of them joined out of desperation rather like that. Oh my God, I can't can't phrase this properly, but um, it's, it's not really about the organization and its ideals, but it's just a job or something like that. Yeah. It reminds me, yeah. It's, it's an argument I have with my husband because my husband does not care about factory farming like I do. And he's like, you know, he would be able to work with animals and treat them like that. And I'm like, how? We just don't discuss it anymore because I get so angry. And he's like, yeah, it's just a job. For all, he's like, for all those people who work in the factory farms, you know, it's just a job to them. Like they just do it. They want, you know, just as a job. I'm, I need money. I'm gonna go work like that. And I'm like, how can you do that? But anywho, it's also. And you know, I don't imagine that um, working in a factory um, pays that much as it may for other jobs. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not really, you know, the most. But if it's the only uh, thing you can find. A high-class job, yeah. But if it's, like, the only thing that you can find, um, then, and it's the only way you can support yourself, then you can't really fault people for going into it. But, however, if you have the privilege to not buy into it, and if you have the ability to, like, for fast fashion, if you have the wealth and the money to not buy into fast fashion, and you can buy ethically, then it is better than you that you do that because you have more of a choice than others you could also buy by used which is something i personally like to do mm-hmm. um but anyway that that's also could be 
cheaper. But um, yeah, I mean, I like this, the whole discussion. I mean, this is definitely all bearing on, you know, real life issues, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you have more, more in your notes? I'm wondering if there's anything that I'm missing. (laughs) Uh... Yeah, I mean, I think this is pretty comprehensive. I mean, you know, it's another, it's again, a central theme. And like, I guess we'll keep be keeping talking about it um, (laughs) as the story goes along. But um, yeah, I mean, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I I really like the idea of the cycle. And I think I literally said cycle in the 81 podcast. And so seeing it brought up in uh, episode 85 was a very pleasant surprise. (laughs) Um, Very validating, I'm sure. Yes. (laughs) Um, So it is the only way that we can break out of this cycle is to become aware in to learn from mistakes and to actively fight for a better world. And I think that's what March is trying to do. Um, He is using his position, he is using his privilege and he is using his power to um, create a better system and to try and work these issues out through um, through the, what we consider the morally good path because um unlike lauren lauren and march are like great they're kind of paralleled uh lauren's a bit behind because she's not entirely sure but she's getting there (laughs) she's not entirely sure what she wants she's getting there both are trying to both are trying to take down the phantom scythe however lauren has resorted to less ethical means like uh, what we would consider less ethical because she is because she is becoming an enabler of um, the purple hyacinth um, by like not turning him in and knowing who he is. Um, and so they are, it, March is kind of becoming who I thought Tristan would be. <laughs> and so is this, is this make sense? Sorry, my mind is all over the place. It, um, yeah. sorry they're paralleled lauren is taking the less moral and less ethical route to take down the pandemic cycle march is staying um on the what we consider morally good path even if it is slower and even if it is more flawed and faulty but at the same time like lauren was able to achieve a little more than march like she was able to turn in more like um like the Loon convicts, she was able to turn in more PS members than he was in his mm-hmm. tenure. So it seems yeah, like her method is working yeah. a little better. That's the issue. We don't know. We know that the police hasn't really caught many PS members, but we don't know what else March has done throughout his career, right? You know, it, it doesn't necessarily have to do with PS. It could have been like, like you were saying, like helping the little guy, helping the poor people, you know. Uh, we assume that he was an advocate for, for justice within the police department. So even mm-hmm. if it wasn't related to PS, um i hope i would hope that he was you know doing a good job mm-hmm. uh, lilia brings up a good point uh lauren has gone farther than march has i mean she got guys that 
Lauren, uh, that March was spending like what seven years trying to convict, but and it does really kind of say something that the justice system is not very cannot is not always very just, and it is a problem I would say when you have to resort to crime to get stuff done because the current system is so incompetent at um, you know doing it for you and that could be another when crime is more efficient to get your goals done it could be another metaphor for the phantom scythe they are turning to crime to get their goals done and lauren did the same thing because crime between lauren and march has shown to be more effective in you know trying to achieve their goals and so it's just another I can't say that word just another complexity what Lauren is doing and what the PS like they're a bit they're too different um in a way like what she's doing is a little morally gray but at the same time like she's not she's not killing anybody or I guess yeah the people she that died were feel yeah. responsible for those those people who died in the tower, the guards. She definitely, I think, felt responsible for that, and that's weighs on right. her. But I just realized something. Um, so Lauren is is able to do this because she she's collaborating with someone within the Phantom Scythe. Didn't we? Uh, weren't we told that the people who were killed in the tower, or some people, were um, were moles within the Phantom Scythe? Weren't there? Some, wasn't there a mention of that? That there was um, infiltration attempts. There were infiltration attempts. I Other don't ones? recall that. I know Della Rocca and Grayson were moles, but I'm not sure about that's, the that's what I was thinking of. I think the loon convicts were um, killed so they wouldn't be able to become moles and so they wouldn't be able to um, pass on information about the operations of the Phantom Scythe and the operations of Apostle Seven. Because sometimes not the only person to collaborate with the Phantom Scythe in the attempt of. Uh, getting good done because mm-hmm. sometimes when you arrest people from like a prominent organization um i guess the justice or like whoever's i guess legally in charge they would try to bargain with them for more names or more information to get give them like lighter sentences so i guess they got rid of them before mm-hmm. before they got to do that I think they were moles before then i thought they were originally moles like not just because um they were worried about what they would leak um I, I guess they were like, there were moles in the Phantom Scythe for the Phantom Scythe, I guess, because like um, they were working for Apostle Seven, but, and they were technically working against the leader, but they were still Phantom Scythe. I'll have to reread because I may have misunderstood, or I'll reread it and see what I, what I see. Because <laughs> well, you know. I think. Like most of the assassinations that happen uh, tend to be either moles or people who are really close to the royal family. I think we, we've been told that. Um, mm-hmm. But the those ones specifically were uh, just the people involved in the seventh uh, apostles operation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, the leader probably knows, from my understanding, apostle seven is doing something behind the leader's back because uh, the apostle is getting tired of how long this is taking and I'm pretty sure yeah the leader knows about this because the leader has planted Bella as a spy and so the leader um, probably sent Karen to go kill the loon convicts because they were working in a, they were working for apostle seven and 
Apostle 7 wouldn't be able to get them out of jail, and thus it would be a blow to A7's operation. The leader thinks that, sorry, the leader thinks that Lewin is part of Apostle 7, rather than just being independent, independently in a new sense. <laughs> um, because, because the Loon has been catching Apostle 7's, like catching those people under Apostle 7, um, the leader probably doesn't think that Loon is with A7, but we may get a team up between Loon, so Kieran and Lauren, and the leader as they try, as they team up as they like combine forces to take down Apostle 7. I genuinely think that might happen. <laughs> okay. Well, they're in tinfoil land. Everything is welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, especially if like, there's a theory that I think I mentioned it the other day that um, the leader is Mr. Rosenthal. And... <laughs> I was talking to Lanks, one of the mods, about this theory. And she and I have also discussed um, Loon teaming up with the leader. And I was like, in if Mr. Rosenthal is the leader, in episode 49, Mr. Rosenthal is like, I'll treat you to cheesecake afterwards, like after the ceremony. Um, and if he, and he wasn't lying there. So I'm wondering... Will there be a scene in the future when Mr. Rosenthal has come back? Like from he's like um he's actually alive because he's a leader, and he meets up with Lauren, who knows he's the leader, and she's like, Why should I trust you? Because he had offered her, like, you know, we can combine forces and we could take down mm -hmm. A7. They meet, they go for cheesecake, and she's like, All right, you should you need to like sell me on this. And he tries to convince her to come over to um, his side over cheesecake <laughs> and then and then we'll get like a uh, conflict with Kieran because this man has um, been an enabler in Kieran's torture and has made Kieran do all these terrible things and we'll get um, an argument between the two over what they should do because they will ultimately be more powerful if they team up with the leader to take down a seven but then it's going to be the leader versus loon <laughs> so their temporary allies if any of that makes sense it probably doesn't no, I find it interesting because I like I mentioned like I don't like speculating I don't do it I like to be surprised so mm -hmm. it's just fascinating to see like there's so many possibilities yeah <laughs> you know like I don't even speculate on who the leader is I'm like I don't know it could be anybody <laughs> so yeah okay do we have anything um else to say before we wrap up the episode uh I think so some interesting notes that I liked mm -hmm that Minnie pointed out was the puddles, the puddles that we see in this are the added, are the added problems in life um, known as all the trouble the phantom sight has brought to the life of the citizens of Artalis. However, it's needless to say that the reason for them is to ever admerge the negligence of the rulers to the people's suffering. And I thought that was pretty interesting because I also thought that the puddles sort of um, were a reflection of March and Lauren they're really just it's this huge moment of reflection and it's just the puddles we see their reflections and 
we've been seeing quite a few reflections lately. I mean, we saw Karen's reflection in his coffee mug. We saw Lauren's. Re- we saw Lauren's reflection on the bridge. Um, did we see any other reflections? I'm not sure, but we've been see- they've been showing up lately. In like 44, after Lauren leaves, Kieran looks at like the lake in the cave and looks at his reflection there. Oh yeah, that too. Uh, there may have been some more reflections in season two that I don't remember. <laughs> um, something else Minnie pointed out was, I think it's about her parents. And now a very interesting ha- thing happens. We see her thinking of her parents, knowing them as guilty, no matter if they knew about the Allendale train station tragedy or not. Th- this change of opinion is a sign of growth, but not complete growth. We see her remembering happy faces of her parents in her childhood as a child most people tend to see their parents as flawless perfect people because they take care of them and show affection towards them and give children a very warm sense of safety leading to leading to seeing them as the best people ever then when the same kid sees their parents wrongdoings and realize it for the first time their beliefs are shattered and the perfect model turns into the worst exaggeration happens as long as in the mind is as long as the mind is not totally grown up. When finally the mind grows up, you're finally able to see how the how great everything is. You see that no one is only good or bad. Lauren has been the child from the start at, of the story, seeing her side as the bright um, and the other as the dark. Now that she knows her supposedly bright side parents were taking part in the dark side, she's seeing them as dark too. But hopefully we'll soon see her complete development into an emotionally grown up person who can see everything together. One's flaws and one's righteous behaviors exist perfectly together. And that's what makes us human. Beautiful. Very, very well said. Yeah. I love this metaphor of Lauren growing up because she is still stuck in the past. uh, past. She is still in that state of being a child and uh, many highlights this she still sees she or at the beginning of the story she still saw the world as um black and white and a part i guess part of it was you know she never moved on from dylan but now she is moving on from dylan and we see that highlighted in this chapter and because she's able to move on and because she's able to um you know keep on going she's seeing how like you've been saying, how everything is more complex than she thought. And the whole the whole scene is great, by the way. The rain obscures things, and the whole scene is in you know gray tones. Mm-hmm. The sky is gray, and then we see light shining through as Lauren um, is growing. Oh, perfect! Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like how it, this whole thing stre- strengthens her motivation, like rather than make her doubt herself, like she's actually more determined now than before. Mm-hmm. Um, something Minnie also said is that this is the stage uh, when she looks at her parents' tomb, she starts trembling, trembling in duality, shock, and the desire to not believe in what she now thinks is actually the truth. This is the stage where all previous thoughts and beliefs have to fall down. This is the moment when Hikate said, the world will come crashing down before you, stricken by the lightning bolt of truth. There's no escape from this destruction, the final outcome, death. But death is not always about life ending. It's about new beginnings too. The old has to die for the new to come, be it for better or for worse. Yes, the old beliefs have to die for her so she can see the new, the truth. How ironic that she's always been able to hear lies that has never seen the truth and now is going through the hard way of 
crashing her false thoughts and replacing them with the new truth, although not completely revealed yet. And that's, you know, calling back to the prologue. Um, she's, she was blind despite her ability to tell lies. That's a good analogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything else I missed? I, I guess I should read this part. Um, so it starts with the rain ending. Uh, they both fold, they as in March and Lauren, they both fold their umbrellas, which as said, shows they have let their guards down. I think you've made that doubt. And now they're starting to open up to each other with March telling her about his lost family. The difference between both of them who have lost their families is that March is still very faithful to his, to all what he believed, but Lauren is lost. She's lost because of all the turns of events that have, that has lost her belief in why she started the path she's taken. Starting from being demoted, she started to second question her choice of being who she is. Knowing Harvey was a spy was another blow to her faith in serving people through justice. But now March is reminding her with the very best chosen words that no matter how bad the system is, they still fight until the day when finally the puddles of misery are dried out by the sun of hope. March is not and has never been blind to all the events around. He has always believed, um, all he has believed was even in a place as deeply as deeply, deeply <laughs> troubled and run as Otalis, if he does the right thing, then there will be hope for improvement. No matter how small, it, it will be one day change. This gives Lauren strength, audacity, and hope. You can see through her eyes that this, that a huge part of her lost faith and hope are coming back and being revived she gains her self-esteem back to the point she goes to rebuild her deal and accept the truth beautiful definitely that's what march has done for her sorry i couldn't really hear what you said <laughs> sorry yeah no that's beautiful and this definitely is what march did for lauren mm-hmm. yeah March is such a great dude. I love him so much. <laughs> yep. Um, I think the only thing that I'm seeing left to say is about Annabelle and the circumstances of her death and then a connection between the Sinclairs and uh, Karen White. So I guess I'll start with the... Um, with Annabelle before we get to March. Or sorry, the Sinclairs. Um, so for Annabelle, <laughs> someone thought that she might have died at Orion, like if she maybe she was in Snapdragon. Someone also proposed Hanbury, but March did not react in that way when they were pursuing the PH in early in the series. If the PH was the one to kill his wife, we would have seen a stronger reaction from him. But then again, I also proposed the part about forgiveness earlier. So March keeps his ma- un, uh, as we've pointed out in like the prologue, I think in the prologue podcast, when we see the mask come off, we see the characters like true emotions and true thoughts and stuff like that. March did not take off his mask in the prologue, so or in the scenes following that. Sorry, not in the prologue. Uh, March <laughs> March did not take off his mask when they were looking at the murder scene, so he may have trying to been trying to have kept his cool and we may have not uh, realized. 
Um, I thought that she maybe ha- would have died at Allendale because there's a sign at the beginning saying that the gravesite is dedicated to the victims of Allendale, though it doesn't make sense why Rosie was there unless they want to bury. It doesn't make sense why Rosie was like, um, she why Rosie's at this gravesite unless they want to bury her next to her mother. Because um, if it was, because um, apparent. Oh God. Okay, because Rosie would have died before Allendale, and so she would have been uh, buried somewhere else. And so if Rose, uh, if Annabelle died at Allendale, then and she was supposed to go to the Allendale specific gravesite, then I just find it a little funny that they would have to, um, you know, carry uh, Rosie's coffin over here and it's well, Lauren's parents were also in the area like it's not only yeah. Allendale I think yeah I think it's just um a cemetery with a section but I don't think we we can assume that Rosie and Annabelle are buried in that section mm-hmm. um building onto your theory Mindy about how Annabelle may have been in the Phantom Scythe um it says that in those who par- on the sign, it says, in honor of the victims of the Allendale train station tragedy and those who perished while braving the danger to help, you will be remembered. Rest in peace. So Annabelle may have been a spy in the Phantom Scythe. And it does make me wonder also if March is the mentor character and the mentor character uh, does often get killed off will we see March be killed by the Phantom Scythe while on duty and will March be buried with his wife and daughter and will we see will we see March's grave next to them at the end of the series stop (laughs) I'm only starting to like the guy okay don't do this (laughs) well that would be very poetic but very sad yeah it would be I I do think there will be a few callbacks back to this chapter. Well, at least they finally re- reunite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. It's comforting, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, on to yeah. the... Also, sorry, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. Uh, the... If you, if you don't mind me to bring this up, uh, the, like when we were talking about the connection between uh, Kieran and the Sinclairs. Oh yeah, you can do um, it. So um, I was thinking like maybe one of his parents were imprisoned for a crime that they did not commit, which is why he was helping Lauren with the Chow case, uh, Chow's ex-wife case, because she is in a similar position to uh, the one that one of his parents would have been in. So, um, and then, um, I was talking about this with a friend actually a few months ago, uh, how like um, when Kieran hesitated to kill Lauren is because uh, she had the gold, same pensive golden eyes as her mother or something like that. But yeah, I'm not sure. But like that kind of implies that there's some kind of childhood connection between them. And I think F hinted that it might be related to the secret garden book. So yeah. we were saying that maybe um, the copy was given to uh, Kieran through one of the Sinclairs, who would have been maybe his parents' lawyers. Mm. Or I also think that maybe the Sinclairs were the lawyers who were against Kieran's family, like who ended up getting Kieran's parents in jail. And that would be a little messed up, but it 
it is also a possibility. <laughs> but either way, it results in him like seeing how the system, how the legal system just completely failed him because uh, yeah. he did not have the money. Mm-hmm. I also wonder the fact that it says um, Rachel Adwell Sinclair. I'm assuming Adwell was her maiden name. So I wonder mm-hmm. if we'll find out more about the Adwells and if that'll come up later. I think F said this a while back on the old uh, Purple Hyacinth server. I think we asked about like um, the Sinclair's family status and the Sinclair's are old money. So they've had money for a really long time. I'm not sure about the Adwells, but it, it's possible that is that it is also the same because it seems that the rich people in Artalis like to keep their money among the rich people. <laughs> people tend to marry, you know, people of the same class. That's just how the world is also. Mm-hmm. But it is, so it is also possible that um, Rachel did come from a lower class. And that may also explain why Alexander and she are so sympathetic because, you know, um, Rachel has the experience. But otherwise, yeah, we don't really know much about Rachel's family. We know a little bit more about um, Alex's because, you know, uh, Tristan. (laughs) But yeah, otherwise, we're still very in the dark and it's likely we won't know much more. But about her family specifically, but as more of the mystery um, unfolds about Snapdragon and about the Phantom Scythe, we'll likely learn more about Rachel and Alexander specifically. Yes, amen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So was we that... have to meet somebody who knows them. So mm-hmm. new characters, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Or people that we know already who will reveal themselves to be connected in ways we didn't know. I am praying that Darcy uh, becomes a character and that we get to see Darcy in this because uh, she was she was name dropped in uh, episode 67, but we haven't been entirely sure. And I have like a whole like character design sheet for her and I'm just praying that we get to see her um okay so i've been watching the streams and that's all i'm oh, gonna no say spoilers. <laughs> no stream spoilers yeah. i've seen uh, people applying stuff no stream spoilers <laughs> yeah okay i know i'm kind of thinking um inspirational when i last talked to him he said he stopped watching the streams because it spoils stuff for him mm-hmm. and i was like hmm, now i'm kind of seeing seeing that now <laughs> yeah i used to watch streams as well um but I too stopped because I didn't want spoilers. Uh, I think the last stream I watched was episode 69. Wow. Yeah. That was a while I'm, back. That was like September. Yeah, that, it was a long time. Um, I think I stopped watching around the time that we moved over to the new server. So yeah, September is a good estimate. I did pop in for, I think, the 70, uh, one of the early 70s stream out of like boredom. And uh, apparently people were, there was something big happening and it was Kieran getting shot when he was like 17. And I had no context and I thought it was current Kieran. <laughs> oh no. Hmm. Yeah. Otherwise, I think I, I haven't really watched streams since. 
There may have been an illustration stream that I watched, but I don't remember which one. I've been watching them since last summer, and I, I never, I never miss a stream. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, because yeah. it's like spoilers that I don't know. I don't mind spoilers. I actually like welcome spoilers. Mm-hmm. I don't welcome spoilers. I hate <laughs> spoilers. Uh, November was a particularly bad month for me. In uh, October, I got spoiled on Raphael. And I also got spoiled on Abel Sandman. Like, I was convinced he was Dylan. But what, and when I found out it was Sandman, there was, like, a month. It was, like, the episode had just come out for Fast Pass. And I didn't Fast Pass at the time. And I started Fast Passing in late December. Uh, when I found out that it was Abel Sandman through... I started crying <laughs> because I was spoiled. And also, I was just so convinced it was Dylan. <laughs> but I'm glad it was. <laughs> in hindsight, I'm glad it was uh april sandman i hate i still hate his character and i want to bubble him but i'm glad it was sandman because it was very important for lauren's character oh, it definitely was yeah the deadline's coming up so we're presumably gonna see sandman or yeah. hear what happens to him soon i wonder where is he living like in my mind he's just living underneath a bridge like the soul <laughs> he is but like I mean, is he in a hotel? Does he have money to stay in a hotel? Like, what is he doing right now? Like, <laughs> where is he getting the money the from? Because obviously, he has- <laughs> yeah. Since he after selling- he left, yeah, <laughs> selling. Is he selling information to the Phantom Scythe or the Royals? Is I don't think he's the spy master. He seems pretty unaffiliated. So, yeah. <laughs> but like after no. leaving the PS, where does he get money from? Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll find out. Um, yeah, so this podcast is two hours long, and I think two hours is already kind of like yeah. the mass of what people listen to. <laughs> um, yeah, so any last things to say? Or are we good? Uh, I think we got everything. That was, that was comprehensive. Really mm-hmm. That's great. I love it. I, I do love oh. the long discussions. Um, so thank you so much and we'll I, be on again very shortly. I did remember one thing. <laughs> thank I you did for having us. Thing. It's all right oh, if okay. I just slip this in. But the angel statue, we go from angel, we go from seeing the angel statue to seeing um Doc and Tristan and Stefan. And although seeing it like right before we see them could be to cue us in that uh the angel symbolism that we see, it does also make me think that the angel statue is looking above all the graves and all those deaths and it makes me think that since we see these three men as angels right afterwards are they responsible for these deaths are they overlooking all these deaths and are these all and are all these deaths their fault interesting yeah i i thought tristan was clean i thought he wasn't phantom scythe but you know what <laughs> maybe he is but then again it also could tie into the part that they're all enablers of the current system and they all helped or are currently helping um uphold it Great. we could also just go into a totally crackpot theory maybe they all enjoy dressing up as angels on the side and- <laughs> <laughs> not very plausible but you never well, know we- <laughs> You know, they're they're staging a production at the end of the party. This is the entertainment. Everyone's <laughs> dressing up as angels, doing a choir. <laughs> Only time will tell. 
And this party is going to be interesting. Like, I think tea will be spilled at this party. Yeah. I am. Okay. People, it was theorized that the handwriting on the Orion and Sons, like, on that business card, it was theorized that that handwriting was Dawkins. And so I have been waiting for this party to see if Dawkins will write something down and to see if Lauren will recognize it. And if, and if he does, then... I might scream out of joy. <laughs> or it could be Stefan. It could be Stefan or Tristan, but uh, you never know. That's a good point. Maybe Lauren will have everybody like write their names on their cards or something to get their handwriting. Yeah. Like a little guest book or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, good yeah. Point. She should totally do that. <laughs> mm. Well, thank you so, so much for coming on and sharing amazing theories and amazing themes and you know just the the thoughts great discussions really mm-hmm. wonderful in-depth and thank you so much i'm very appreciative thank, thank you for, you for having, having us. us yeah these these discussions are always so fun and um yeah yep. i always love coming on so thank you so much for having us thank you thank you and it'll be up as soon as everything finishes uploading so very Yay. shortly Okay. Have a great time. We'll see you soon. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye. See you. Thank you so much to my current patrons, Susie, Lady Liberus, Alley Cat, Chelsea, Lily, Jenny, Haley, One and Only Taco, Elizabeth, Maria, Molly, Veronica, Emily, Emily, Joe Rochelle, Dahlia, Saucy Tuggles, Meg, Anne Rose, Priya, Stephanie, and Samantha. Your support is truly appreciated.